beginning this morning in our study together. We have some that are visiting with us from the community and some from other areas, and we're certainly glad that you're here. Uh, if I seem a little discombobulated today, it's because I'm only half here. Diane is in Tampa, uh, and maybe three-quarters of he's not here. I don't know. That might be a better way to put that, but uh, she's in Tampa today, so pray for her safe travel. Also, I meant to mention to Henley that um, uh, Cecil and Dorothy Clanton and Alice Santoya mentioned to me that they would like to uh, place membership with this congregation to be a part of our group again. Uh, they were part of this congregation for many years and left us for a little while to worship somewhere else, and they've decided to come back and be with us again, and we're very grateful for that. We're, that that uh, was very exciting to us that they'll be a part of this congregation once again. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, the apostle says, Likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. We're going to take a couple minutes and look at these passages in our, uh, in our theme for this month, of, uh, actually for February, it's March already, but we're still catching up. Uh, of the aspect of individuals that profess godliness and men and women who profess godliness. This is one of those particular passages in this group of of texts that I want us to take a look at more specifically. What do you claim to be? What do you profess to? And if you profess to do something or to be something, does it have any reflection what you look like on the outside? I think we recognize, even from societal norm, that individuals that take on positions or profess positions many times reflect that in how they dress. If I walk out onto a baseball field and I'm going to put myself in a position of being an official, then I have a uniform that I wear. If a policeman is going to uphold the law, he has a uniform that he wears. If individuals, you see, uh, work at a particular place of uh, particular, particular employer, and your employer may be that as well, they will recognize that if you're going to take this position and you're going to work for me, then you need to dress a certain way. Uh, That reflects that. Uh, That doesn't startle us. doesn't shake our confidence in the aspect of uh, of outward versus inward appearance to recognize that clothing plays that particular part in our society. In a sense, it's always been that way. Even in the time of Jesus, there were those, you see, who dressed a certain way, and as they dressed a certain way, it reflected their position, not only in the eyes of others, but as well even reflected their position that they held themselves to be in themselves. After calling on men to pray with holy hands, by lifting up holy hands, in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul now directs his attention to the women of a congregation, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 2, and it says that he appeals to women who profess godliness. the idea of professor, the word that's translated professing in verse 10, is epilegalo, which means to assert something. It means to announce upon something. Or to assert something respecting oneself. So it is to make an announcement about yourself, to profess something. And that's what Paul is presenting here. The basis of the Apostles' appeal in the words that we're going to study is that Women who claim to be godly, who affirm that about themselves, who claim, as the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, who claim or affirm that they worship God, should dress in a certain way. So we're going to explore the connection that the Apostle makes here because I think it is an important one 
I also think it's one that can be applied even beyond the aspect of uh, the, what Paul specifically addresses here in the attire of women. But it presents itself even as he, as he exits this text and talks about the, the idea of good works. That there is certain outward clothing that's coupled with good works that's fitting or proper for someone who claims to worship God. Well, what this connects for me as, as I look at this particular passage is that clothing has a connection to the aspect of character. It doesn't matter what we wear or what we put on. Does God have a dress code? Is there particular instructions in the Bible about the clothing that we would wear? And I think some of that is, some, some of the answers to those particular questions are found in this particular text. But they're also found in a general way of understanding that there is a connection between outward apparel and inward character. In fact, I would suggest to you that Paul's assuming that. That is, he writes this text to Timothy, who will then express this, this apostolic command to the church at Ephesus and maybe other places. That he's assuming they already understand there's a connection between clothing and character. He's not teaching that what we wear on the outside makes us different on the inside. That you can't be per, you can't be a different person simply by putting on different clothes. He's not teaching that what we wear on the outside makes us different on the inside. Nor is he saying that clothing would create character. It is certainly true that one could dress modestly and discreetly and even in a humble way, and yet be arrogant on the inside. Jesus ran across that as well in his own teachings, that there were those who were putting on the garbs of those who claimed to be religious leaders, those who were expressing outwardly that they were pious, reverent, but inside they were full of, you see, extortion and ungodliness. So certainly what Paul is presenting here, and what we're going to explore in the connection between character and clothing, is not that clothing creates character, or the clothing necessarily in every regard is a reflection of the reality of a character that's within. But what he's saying is that there is outward clothing that proper and fitting if you're trying to display a certain attitude. That if you're trying to display a certain attitude in the other way around that there's clothing that would work against that. That would violate the principle of humility and submission to dress a certain way. So there is a connection. In a very general way, we might notice that in the book of Proverbs, chapter 7, verse 10. The wise man describes a very naive young man who's out walking the streets at night and he's met by a woman, it says, with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. Well, what is presented here in this proverb is that here's an individual whose clothing is connected with an understanding of her character. She is wearing the attire of a harlot. Now, I'll leave that up to you to recognize what that particular attire would look like. But what we do recognize is that there is clothing that reflects <coughs> character in the sense of what a person is professing to be. So even in today's open-ended society where individuals are open-minded about what people wear, we recognize that there are traits that associate with certain types of care. Clothing. In fact, we call them that, don't we? Call them characteristics of an individual that can be seen on the outside. It would follow then that God would be concerned about that. If a person's character can be in some way reflected in what they choose to put on, then it would make sense that God would care about what we wear because what God certainly cares about is our character. If there's anything he wants to mold and wants certainly for us to be able to influence others with as God's children to be lights in the world and to bring others to Christ. God's concerned about that we have a certain character. So if God's concerned about that 
He's concerned about what we wear and the influence that we would have. Doesn't surprise us then to find these passages here in a context that has to do with the development of character first in men who would pray and be holy all the time as they pray and and women who would be in a position of professing godliness to put on certain clothes and to leave off certain other, other types of clothes. So you look at the text again in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. As we mentioned in our look at verse 8, the context is important. Paul's giving directions concerning the holiness of character. Verse 8, he commands that men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. He's not just interested in getting people, men, to raise their hands when they pray. The focus is on the holiness of the hands, that a person's hands, or what they do in life, have to be sanctified and given to God, or their prayers are meaningless. And certainly, in the context, as they lead others in prayer... I might need to clarify a point I made concerning this passage last time when we looked at verse 8. That Paul's use of the gender-specific word in verse 8, where he used the word for men, which means gender man as opposed to a female, is significant. I believe it's significant in the sense that Paul is beginning to address here, as he used the more general word that means mankind every, in all the passages previous to that, that he's beginning to specifically deal with a relationship that men, as opposed to females, have to prayer, and that men are to lead in prayer, and that they were they were the ones who would lead in an assembly in prayer, and therefore they were the individuals who were to lift up their holy hands. So I made the point that this that the context would point towards the aspect of the assembly. I did not want to leave the impression, as we go on and further, particularly and look at the rest of the passages, that it's restricted to that. Because just as men are not simply to be holy in the assembly, men or women are not presented here instructions about apparel because of what they are simply to wear at the assembly or that he's only concerned with whether or not they put on modest apparel during the assembly. These particular admonitions go beyond that. They're not restricted to that. And one way I know that's true is because later on in 1 Peter chapter 3, Paul Peter uses almost the same terminology to connect the aspect of the submissiveness of wives to their husbands and the clothing that they would choose to wear. And that's a general command, not just one that's restricted to an assembly. But he starts out here by saying, in like manner. And that again connects these passages together. It connects what has been said with what he's getting ready to say. Some teach that this very phrase, in like manner, is Paul's connection between, uh, between men and women, and including everything that he said about the men is now to be included in the admonition to the women. And they use that passage to say, uh, to, make, uh, to, to make the assertion that women could lead in an assembly, that women could lead prayer in assembly, that everything that Paul said about women, men now applies to men. That's a false assertion and a false connection. The connection in the term like manner goes back to the verb of the, uh, 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 of the beginning of the passage when Paul says, I will or I desire or I want that men pray in everywhere lifting up holy hands. Just as he desired for men to pray with holy hands, now he desires, or the word specifically indicates the aspect of command, now I command in like manner that women adorn themselves in respectable or modest apparel. There are three words here in this particular passage, I think, that, that are significant. They are, in many ways, uh, connected. They are almost in, a parallel, in, in some translations, they are almost parallel terms to the point that they can be interchangeable. But when placed together, they present a comprehensive picture, not only of the character of the outside, of the out, or an adornment of the woman, but the character, the inward character that Paul is really getting at that's to be reflected in what is worn. He says there here that women are to adorn themselves in respectable apparel. 
The word respectable, the English Standard Version uses the word respectable. New King James uses the word modest. The word respectable here is the word cosmios, from which we get the word cosmos. You know what the cosmos is. If you look out in the sky and you see the stars and the heavens, that's the cosmos, the universe. The word literally means well-arranged. It means orderly. It comes to mean by connotation the aspect of honorable, assuming that that which is orderly is more honorable or more respectable, and so the translation in the English Standard Version takes that particular word and puts it here. The idea then of orderliness is something that is not chaotic. In fact, that's just the opposite of this term, both in the English and in the Greek language. The opposite of cosmos is chaotic. You think about the creation that God came and there was chaos. Everything was disordered. And then God spoke and everything became ordered. The universe came to be because God put things in order that were chaotic. Now that's a general way of looking at the word. But when we apply it to the context here of clothing, we can see that there are some applications. Have you ever seen chaotic clothing? I've seen it on TV. I think, whoa, that doesn't really go together at all. Or that it seems clear that what the purpose of that clothing was to draw attention to the clothing itself. And that's a part of this particular word. The verb adorn in this passage is the, uh, clear, uh, clearly a connected word. It's the verb form of cosmeo. So if you look at what the passage literally says in the original text, it says that Paul's saying order your outward appearance in orderliness. Put your outward appearance in an order. Or arrange it in such a way, you see, that it is respectable. So the word of principle commands dress that's respected by others. It necessarily, by the implication of the word, means that what I'm putting on my body, I'm thinking about how other individuals will think about that, and we reflect upon it. And what it seems to imply, or does imply in the passage, is that what I put on is not designed to draw the attention to the clothing itself, but rather to be reflective of something that's inward. In orderliness, an adornment, an inward adornment that he describes in Peter as a quiet and meek spirit. So Paul mentions here that this is what is to be, this is what is to guide or to uh, characterize the clothing. Cosmios is reflective then of an attitude. First Peter chapter three verse two. I have that passage up here. Yeah, I mentioned anyway. First Peter chapter three verse two. Peter says, "When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear." Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, I want you to notice what Peter does here because it's very similar, parallel to what Paul does in this passage in 1 Timothy. Then he makes the connection again between an inward character and an outward appearance. So he says, do not let your adornment be simply on the outside. Don't just think about what you look on the outside. Think about what you desire to look like from the inside or what you want individuals to see. And let it be that hidden person of the heart, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit that comes forth, that's made known. It can't be, that gentle and quiet spirit can't be seen with the physical eye except as it's reflected in the outward adornment that he describes here as modest or respectable. The other word that he connects here is the word modesty. That you are to adorn yourself with respectable apparel, with modesty. The American Standard Version uses the word shamefastness. NIV says decency, and there are a lot of different synonyms here. Uh, The Holman Christian Standard Bible says propriety. 
The word is edos, which literally means a sense of shame or reverence. Vine says that shamefastness is that modesty which is fast or rooted in character and the connection there again. That here's someone who has a moral perspective on the clothing that they wear and therefore they dress according to that. Linsky defines shame as that which morally holds us back. You don't do something because you're ashamed to do it or you don't put on something because you're ashamed of what it, of what it reflects back. Now what we have to recognize is that Here's that connection sometimes that's so hard for us to make or sometimes that we buck at a little bit. And that is a moral perception to an outward adornment. But it implies that. It presupposes a moral aspect of apparel. And so the idea of shame is connected with that. I want to suggest to you that this, that this particular word is rooted to what we recognize in the Scripture as a prohibition against exposing the physical body or nakedness as the Bible describes it. It's interesting to note that the first three chapters of the Bible story speak to the subject of dress, what a person puts on. Now, not specifically as Paul does here. But we learn from Genesis chapter 3 that clothing is not just left to the arbitrary choice of man. The need for clothing is connected in the story of Genesis with man acquiring a knowledge of good and evil. So it says in verse 3 that so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of it of its fruit, and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, for they sewed leaves, fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So the word there is aprons. So what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Well, there's the sin, which opens up the eyes of, of, of Adam and Eve to the consciousness of sin. And in the consciousness of sin, there is accompanied with it the recognition by both Adam and Eve that they had exposed their physical bodies that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves coverings. Their total nakedness was not consistent with the moral consciousness that they now possessed. That's the point I want us to notice. That even after clothing themselves later on with aprons, they were ashamed and attempted to hide themselves from God. Now, no doubt that hiding was because that they had violated God's will. But in the context... It's almost connected intrinsically with the aspect of their outward appearance that they were trying to cover up. Later, after God drove them from the garden and imposed the punishment for their sin, it's interesting to note that He reclothed them in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. And He gave them tunics, as the word is. Kathaneth in chapter 3 verse 21. The apron that they put on themselves seemingly was not enough, at least. I believe there's a connection to the aspect of covering and the atonement that we'll not get into in this particular lesson. But the implications need to be from the text that what they did for themselves to clothe their body when they were punished and put outside the garden was not enough and God gave them more to wear. In fact, the word for tunic is described a shirt that hangs down to the shoulders and reaches to the knees, sometimes to the ankles. It was more descriptive of a full covering of the human body rather than just the aprons that they wore. You can visualize that by suppose any way that you want. But the implications of the aspect here is that the exposed human body was something that was to elicit and did elicit in the conscience of right and wrong shame. Noah's sons walked backwards to cover the nakedness of their father in the book of Genesis. The law of Moses forbade the placement of altars at the tops of steps so the nakedness of the worshippers would not be exposed as they approached it. The priest, because his clothing would be symbolic of his holiness, wore breeches under his tunic, lest his nakedness would be exposed. 
What the Israelites understood from God's law was that the exposure of the human body had an association with shame and sexuality. That it was exposed from the standpoint of the intimacy of marriage, but in no other place. In fact, what we recognize is that in Leviticus chapter 18, the taking of another person in the context of your marriage was referred to by uncovering your nakedness with another. So that it was forbidden that there was a context in which you see that exposure was right and there were contexts in which it was wrong. What I think is implicit to me, that I think somewhat helpful, is to recognize that our society has a totally different view of that, culturally. And any aspect here that somehow exposing the human body can be asexual, can be something that doesn't have anything to do with sexuality, or approved in any cultural aspect, is not found in the Scriptures. God's law never sanctioned or ever mentioned the dichotomy between sexuality and the exposure of the body or nudity from the standpoint of it being for art. I remember going to school and, 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 and you're a young teenager and going to art class and flipping through these pages and there's these pages here of people without any clothes on and the teacher's saying, oh, don't worry about it, that's just art. Well, it is art. But you know what else it is? It's nakedness. And the idea here is that when I look at it from the scriptures, what God says is that God created man to be able to exhibit shame as a result of the exposure of the human body. And the biblical concept you see of nakedness include the concept of humiliation or debasement. And so what the scriptures scriptures use this very language to describe the aspect of the shame of nakedness and the standpoint of sin against God. Isaiah chapter 47, the prophet says about Israel, your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. He's talking about bringing judgment upon them because of their sin, because they have violated the law of God and he calls it the shame of their nakedness. You will be exposed, he says. Levitation 1 verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned gravely, therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. She was supposed to be ashamed, but she wasn't ashamed of what she'd done. There was no shame fastness there. In the book of Revelation, the same context, the same type of language is used. The Spirit says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined with fire, that you may be rich, white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyes that you may see. Now what I would suggest to you, and what might appear to you to be somewhat uncomfortable language I'm using here to describe the aspect of, uh, of clothing, is that the Bible presents principles that are, con- that are counter-cultural to the world in which we live in. And we have to decide in many ways by which principle will we guide our lives. What, what God clearly says is that there is a shame to exposing the human body. And when we, when we look at that from the standpoint of what the Bible teaches, we recognize that there is all around us this shameful conduct in clothing. You know, a few of us, very few of us would say it's okay to completely expose the human body, the nudist camp. We would condemn that in every way. But it's interesting to note that the word translated naked or nakedness does not refer to no clothing at all. In, first, in John chapter 21, Peter recognized that Jesus was there and he wanted to go to him, but he didn't have on the right clothing. It says that he, that he was ashamed to go because he was naked, the King James Version. And so he put on his outer garment. I would suggest to you that Peter was not walking around without any clothes on. 
But what he considered himself was that he was not clothed properly to be in the presence of Jesus. So he put on his outward clothes and then jumped in the water. That's a little different, isn't it? (laughs) A lot of people today, when they get around the water, they take off their clothes. Peter put it on. Why? Because there was an aspect of character in the presentation of character in the clothing that was worn. And so what Peter, what Paul may be addressing here is that a godly woman or a godly man who is so conscious of the presence of sin in the world and never want, would never want to cause another person to sin would never dress such a way to cause an individual to be shamed. Either the person that is seeing what is being worn or the person that's actually wearing the clothing. What we recognize is the term lasciviousness that's found in the New Testament, sometimes translated wantonness in the Scriptures, depicts not only the illicit lust that's involved when one person desires another person sexually, but also creating that lust in another person. Is that a problem? Not a problem, but is that a concern in today's culture? I think so many times it is not. And Christians have to recognize both men and women that what the Bible teaches is so, cult, so countercultural to what goes on around us. It would call us to a higher standard to recognize that I have responsibility, what I wear, not only to reflect the characters within me, to make sure that I'm protecting the conscience of other individuals and the, you see the, the spiritual position of another individual by the clothing that I wear. And that presents, I think, the, the aspect of, of the next context, and that is self-control. The word here is sometimes translated sobriety in the King James Version, propriety in the New England. It's saprosune, which means soundness of mind. Literally, it means sanity. And I think I've seen some clothing that I thought was pretty insane. But the idea here that's involved is moderation, something that's kept within bounds. And again, this is something God presents to us for our own good and the idea that there are boundaries into not only boundaries that are, that are assigned by the character that we live but just by the aspect of good taste or common sense one translation used. Ellicott says that this word means the well-balanced state arising from habitual self-restraint. In Titus chapter 2 verse 5 Paul tells the older women to teach the younger women to be discreet. And that's the root word here. To be discreet. If you ask someone to be discreet, you're telling them something. Say, I want you to be discreet. What are you telling them? You're telling them, this is not for everybody. There are boundaries here. You need to be careful because you might transgress those boundaries and tell somebody that shouldn't know. That you need to be quiet about it. The same idea is involved in this word as it applies to clothing. That the woman who professes godliness needs to be discreet in the things that she wears. She needs to hold back or exercise self-control. Most individuals who commonly this passage say the principle prohibits overdressing. The idea of abstentious dressing or pretentious dressing where an individual dresses just to be seen of, of another individual. Judah was condemned for the gaudy dressing of his women, Isaiah chapter 36. Wanton eyes, he says, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. He says, this is all to be done as an aspect of bringing attention to yourselves. And the reason Isaiah mentions it is not because just because of the aspect of the outward clothing, but because it was reflective of the attitude, the character of Israel itself. He was a nation that had tossed off the restraints of God and had no pur- purpose in self-control or restraining themselves in every aspect of their lives. And guess what? It showed up in the clothing that they put on. And I think we certainly can see that in our society. 
If you were just to view the images of how people dress in the world today, could you come up with a pretty good picture of the type of people that were in our society? Or if everybody dressed a different way, if everybody dressed in modest apparel, if everyone had discreetness in their dress, would it be appropriate to look at those individuals and to assign some type of explanation of their character? I believe the Bible says it would, and that that's the reason that God makes those connections. The idea of self-control also, I believe, in this context, indicates that the Christian, both men and women, cannot allow the world of fashion to guide their dress. But what the Christian is looking at is not what comes down the runway, but what reflects the character of the individual from within. Clothing that's based on sexual appeal is not discreet. Clothing that's based on the aspect of just being seen by others is not according to self-control. The Christian must use self-restraint to not draw attention to others from others, nor to draw attention to themselves for the benefit of others. Luke chapter 17. Jesus said to his disciples, It's impossible that no offenses should come. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, he were thrown into the sea, than he should offend one of these little ones. Does that passage apply to what we do in our outward appearance? That woe to me if I cause someone else to stumble because of what I put on my outside. Now, Paul concludes this particular passage, I think, with some very important words. He concludes the section in a not-but construction. It is not the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry. It is not the gaudy appearance or the lack of self-control, the immodest behavior. That's not what reflects the godly character of the woman. But we are to wear and put on what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. It's not this, but it's this. Now that certainly helps us to focus on what really is important in this whole discussion. It's not just about clothing. It's about what I profess to be. The fashion guide for the Christian woman and man is godliness and good works. It's looking to what God wants me to do and understanding what my job is in this world. Godliness by definition, we're going to talk about this more because godliness is a major part of what Paul says to Timothy in the first two chapters, first uh, three chapters of this book. Godliness is the attitude of devotion. It doesn't mean to be like God. It means to give yourself totally to God. The godly person is the person you see who is ready to serve God at all costs. That is first in concern and most concern is what pleases God. And Paul inserts it here in the context of discussing about outward appearance because that's precisely what's at stake. When I stand before the mirror to decide what I'm going to put on, what guides me, what controls me, what ultimately should motivate me, I could turn to the TV and see what other people are wearing. I could turn to my friends and see what they're wearing. Or I could turn inwardly and look at myself and say, what does God want me to wear? What should guide me in my clothing? And if I really want to please God, there is clothing that will reflect that. It's a submissiveness that seeks to please God above everything else. Now the connection of good works is the practical implication of that. If I want to please God, then I desire for other people to please God as well. And therefore, to go out and do good works to serve others is reflective in an attitude that's portrayed in a clothing. What's my job in this world? Serve other people to serve God. Is there clothing that reflects that? I would submit to you that Paul would say, yes, there is. There's clothing that reflects that. 
Many Christians struggle, I think, to get a handle on the New Testament teaching concerning modest clothing. It may be because God talks in principles. He doesn't give us a list of, well, you can wear this, you can't wear that, you can wear this, you can't wear that. Because there's no catalog list of proper and improper clothing, we have to practice what we practice by the concept of principles. But that's precisely what's involved in these passages and calls us to a discernment to apply principles to specific occasions, even the specific cultures that we find ourselves in. That there are circumstances and there are cultures by which clothing would change and be different from one person to another, from one culture to another. If we're too lazy to do the discernment or if we're too unconcerned to look inwardly to God, we'll fail at the aspect of being modestly attired. But recognizing the New Testament speaks to us in principle does not mean that we can't make specific applications or come to different conclusions. What we said about the exposure of the human body should certainly forbid certain types of clothing on every occasion. But there are conclusions about what's right and wrong, even in a relative sense of what a person wears, because God has addressed it in His Word and has moral implications. There is clothing that reflects the godly submissive spirit there is clothing that's not chosen by the world, but rather is chosen by the principles of God's revealed word for our lives. There is clothing that reflects a sense of shame and reverence and moral restraint that tells others that we have a sense of what's right and wrong and that we uphold that sense of what's right and wrong and could see it first in how we dress. There is, there is clothing that professes godliness. And Paul's admonition is that we would seek it out. And we would strive so ardently to be God's people that we would even go to the, to, to, to the, uh, to the extent that we would attempt to dress like we are God's people. Someone said, people we meet should remember not what is on us, but who is in us. And I think that's pretty good. What do we want people to remember? What I wore or who I serve? Lord willing, tonight, or maybe in a future lesson, maybe tonight, we'll talk about what the Bible says about what you wear at church. That's always a question. What should I wear to church? Again, principles that apply, principles that need to be applied to our own life are found in God's Word. Let me close with the admonition of Paul. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit. That's what it's all about. To look to what God would have us to be and who God would have us to be reflected both inwardly and outwardly. I hope some of these things maybe can be helpful to us. Thank you for your attention this morning. We invite you to, to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has died for our sins that we might be a different kind of people. That we might confront our culture with the godliness that God has laid before us. That we might be free from our sins. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to participate in the community of God and become a part of the family of God. By repenting of your sins and confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord, being baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you come while we stand and while we sing?